Good morning once again. Thanks for being with us for worship. Before we uh, get into our text this morning, I just want to give a reminder for the Good Friday service that will be held at Northwest Bible Church in St. Michael. The, I think the details are in the bulletin and the address, or you can look it up on their website as well. But a really important time in the life of the church for us to gather together and commemorate the death of Jesus. Oftentimes when we get to Easter time, we very quickly jump to the resurrection, which is pivotal and crucial in the life of the Christian. However, it is so good for us to linger in the tension of Good Friday. And the whole service is designed to be a little bit more sober, a little bit more reflective. That was the darkest day in the history of the universe. And it's okay to sit in that tension as we anticipate Sunday. So I'd encourage you to prioritize this time. It's 6 o'clock at Northwest uh, in St. Michael, and it'll be, I think, a wonderful time of remembrance and also looking forward. So plan to join us for that if you can. So today we continue now in the armor of God. We looked at the first three pieces last week, and we're going to look at the next three this morning. And as I was thinking about preparing and about our gathering now together this morning, I was thinking part of good churchmanship, just understanding what it means to be a part of a community, is preparing for worship on Sunday. Now all of this might happen in different ways. I'm sure we all have different routines and things we do, but I hope that it includes certain elements. One thing is for sure prayer. You should be praying, as I do, that your heart would be receptive to the Word of God, right? We're not here to hear me speak. We're not here just to sing songs. We are here to hear from God, and we need to pray and prepare our hearts to do that, and I hope that you pray for each other, that your brothers and sisters here would also hear the Word of God and be transformed and changed into the likeness of Jesus. At our house, we usually get our clothes ready on Saturday night, so that Sunday's not so much of a rush. Maybe you go to bed on time so that you don't fall asleep during the sermon. <clears throat> Not that that ever happens. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but seriously, go to bed early. It'll be good for you. Okay, but another way, another way that we prepare for worship is by reading the text ahead of time. Okay, this is one of the advantages of preaching consecutive exposition where we work our way through a book of the Bible. You always know where we're going. Because we're just going to continue in the book that we're in. And so I hope that you read the text ahead of time. And if you're visiting today or a little bit newer and you haven't read Ephesians 6, that's okay. Don't feel bad. But for those of us who have read it, you will notice that this group of weapons, this armor of God that Paul is telling us about is divided into two categories, two sections. The first group that we looked at last week are things that are worn on the body. So this is like no matter what you're doing, where you are, these things are to be with you. Those were, we called them preparatory things. You put them on before you get in the situation. Okay, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, remember the gospel shoes. Those are things that should be with you at all times. Even when the battle slows down a little bit, there's maybe a lull in the action, you have those on you for your protection. But now when the intensity picks up, when you are actively in a situation where you need to fight, Paul gives us the next three. These are the things that we take up and use in the moment. I call them active 
weaponry. And this is what we're going to see here in 16 and 17 this morning. So let's read this together. And uh, we're going to end up spending an extra week in Ephesians. I thought we could end here at the end of the month, but we're going to kick into May one week just so that we have time to deal with mostly next week's section, talking about the importance of prayer as it relates to the armor of God. And I wanted to make sure we didn't gloss over that, so we'll spend one more week here before we end the book. So read with me, though. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning uh, dependent. When we read your word, we understand that you are totally sufficient in yourself, that no one supplies anything to you. And we also read, Lord, that we are totally insufficient and totally dependent. And if we didn't know your character, if we didn't know who you are, that would be terrifying to know that we're always having to rely on someone else. But your word tells us that you will not withhold any good thing from us, that you will provide according to your riches in glory, that through Christ Jesus, you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so our dependence upon you this morning, God, is not something that we're embarrassed about or shying away from, but we just come and say, Father, give us what we need. And through your word now, I pray that you would equip us to stand firm against the attacks of the devil. I do not believe that your desired outcome for us is that we just struggle and toil and are hopeless in our life, but you have sent us your Son, your Spirit, and your Word. And through those means of grace, Lord, we understand what you're calling us to, and so please come and by your Spirit open our understanding that we would rightly handle your Word God, keep me from error, and would you bless the hearing of the word now as my brothers and sisters and I open your word together. Be our teacher, and speak to us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you, if I were to say raise your hands, have read John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress? Got any Pilgrim's Progress? Good, good. So Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It is Bunyan who is in prison in Bedfordshire, England for preaching the gospel and he he writes this book. And in this book he writes about a man named Graceless who lives in the city of destruction. And Graceless gets a copy of what we know to be the scriptures. He hears the gospel and he sets out. He goes, I want to find this celestial city. And as he goes... He comes to the foot of the cross and the burden on his back is lifted and his name changes from graceless to Christian. And shortly after conversion, Christian comes to the armory where he is equipped with everything that he will need to finish his journey, to be protected, and to be able to reach the celestial city. It's a wonderful work of allegory. I don't always go for allegory, but this is very good. And I would highly recommend it because Bunyan is drawing on Ephesians 6. As he equips this fictional character to journey through life, he equips him 
in his literature with the armor of God. And it's a really helpful way to see how these different pieces of armor function. So if you have not read that, they have some kind of more abridged versions for kids and some easier to read, but it is a wonderful read aloud in your family if you'd like to do that. And I'd highly encourage that. So let's pick up now in Ephesians chapter 6 and start by looking at verse 16. We're going to see the rest of this armor now. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now the shield is the fourth piece of armor that Paul has commended or recommended to us, but it is the first time that he's told us exactly how it works. Right? He says right here, here's what you need and here's what it's for. Here's how it works. This is kind of a unique thing to this piece. Now in this imagery, I believe that Paul is again drawing on his understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament. Specifically Isaiah, but all over. And we're going to see that as we move ahead a little bit. But I think what he's talking about with the shield, which shield indicates protection, right? Something that stands between you and danger. And I think he's going back and considering all of these texts in the Old Testament that remind us that God is a shield for his people. Over and over and over again, God uses this language to describe himself. In Genesis 15, God's making his covenant with Abram. And he comes to Abram, and this is what he says, verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to him in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. It's one of these I am statements from God. He's saying, I am the one who protects you. I am your protection. I am your shield. Second Samuel 22, verse 31. This is God. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Not to mention the dozens of references in the Psalms and in Proverbs to God being a shield and a protection for his people. So I think he's primarily drawing on this imagery from the Old Testament. And we should not dismiss the immediate context. I'm sure Paul knows what's going on. He knows what a shield is. They've been used for all of history pretty much. So he knows that the shield is what protected the soldier from sharp things or daggers or swords or spears and arrows and this kind of thing. There was also this practice specifically in Rome and in their military conquest of lighting their arrows on fire. And, and that's how they would terrorize the enemy. It's bad enough to get shot at with arrows, but when you light them on fire, it was meant to instill fear in people. And it worked. I mean, that would be really scary, wouldn't it? And so when Paul says the shield can extinguish the flaming darts, that's a literal thing for him. He knows that that happens. It's not just kind of imaginary language. So he has in mind this idea of protection, of extinguishing a flame, that kind of a thing, and so that's what his imagery is. And while the shield is the word picture, what's the reality he's talking about? A shield? No, faith, right? Faith is the reality that Paul is driving at. Faith is what protects us from the attacks of our enemy. And I would define faith in this context as trust. Trust in what God has said he will do. Let me explain what I mean by this. I want to answer the question that I hope you're happy or asking in your mind right now. If faith is the shield that protects us, how does that work? 
It's one thing for me to stand up here and say, faith will protect you. You're like, great, how does that work? So that's what I want to do. I want to explain to you what I'm thinking when I say faith is a protection, a shield for us. And I believe that it does this. Faith protects us by looking back in confidence and looking forward in hope. Back in confidence, forward in hope. We've already talked in the book of Ephesians about the attacks and the schemes of the devil and the various tactics that he uses to get in your mind and try to cause doubt and anxiety and all these other kinds of things. So let's just pick one of these and use it as an example for how the shield of faith works. Let's say that the fiery dart that's shot at you is doubt. Anyone ever wrestle with doubt? Questioning your circumstances, questioning God's faithfulness. Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing right now? Has God's promise failed? I haven't heard from him. I don't understand what his will is for me. Those are the little seeds of doubt that can get into your mind. They are attacks in a lot of ways. And I want to tell you how faith can help you combat that. If you doubt God's love for you, let's say, and this is not hypothetical, it is sometimes hard in the seasons of our life and you go through really, really horrible, awful things and you say, how could this be God's will for me? You start to doubt and Satan's going, yeah, God doesn't want this for you. This is wrong. He's being mean to you. Doubt, doubt, doubt. How do you, how do you fight that? With the shield of faith. With trusting that what God has said is true. And so you look back. Faith looks back and it sees that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus Christ to pay the penalty from sin and to free you. Faith looks back and reads 1 John 4 that says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the wrath-satisfying sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And you pick up that shield, you look back and say, God has promised, and I trust in faith that what he has said is true. Boom, the dart is stopped. But what if it's doubts about your future? Anyone worried about the future at all? What it's gonna, what's next week going to look like? What's next year going to look like? You can trust God with your future. Faith looks forward in hope. It looks forward in hope. This is what Satan would love for you to do. This is, a, this is a fiery dart that's thrown at you. What if God's promises fail? Dart. What if all of this religious stuff you've been pursuing is just a fool's errand? Dart. Those little thoughts start to creep into your head. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, faith, trust in what God has said is what's going to extinguish those darts and help you to stand. You need to look back and see what God has done. You also need to look forward with hope that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. That if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will bring you all the way through to glory. You need to know that God will not leave you or forsake you. These are the promises of the Bible, and they are what is meant to strengthen our faith as we stand against the attacks of the devil. Faith looks backward in confidence. It looks forward in hope. Right now for the kids, the K through 6th grade Sunday school class is going through 
a curriculum on the promises of God. And what a better thing for our kids to know than God is faithful to his promise. You can trust him. Faith trusts God. I want all of our kids to know that. I want you to know that. So how do you defend against the attacks of the devil? You pick up the shield of faith. You remember the promises of God. And you look forward in hope. This is a really encouraging word for me. And I pray that it is for you. Next, verse 17, Paul says, Take the helmet of salvation. Now when Paul says helmet of salvation, he is referring to the present reality of our standing in Christ. He uses the word salvation a couple different ways in his writing. This way is not referring to the future eschatological salvation that will come when Christ returns. This is referring to the right now, in the moment, salvation that you and I, if you are in Christ, have. This is how he used it back in chapter 2, verses 5 and verse 8, when he says that you have been saved by faith and grace. Have been. You are. That's a present reality that you can bank on. So taking the helmet of salvation should be seen as the apprehension, the grasping of the spiritual reality that right now, if the blood of Jesus has washed you clean from your sin, you are secure. And you put that helmet on in confidence. You tracking with me? It is a present reality. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the word differently. He uses it in terms of the forward looking. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll just give you in terms of contrast, okay? 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now in this context, Paul is looking forward. It is future. The hope of salvation when Christ returns. In Ephesians 6, however, salvation should be seen as a present reality. Something that you can take hold of right now. And this present reality of being saved is what protects our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus and keeps us sane. Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about this in his commentary about how the helmet protects your head, your brain, the functions, your center and keeps you sane against the illogical and irrational attacks of sin. We're talking about sin in Sunday school tonight. And sin is illogical. It makes no sense. And you need a clear head. You need something protecting your faculties so that you can keep your head on a swivel. Pay attention. The helmet of salvation reminds us that we belong to Christ, and it clears our head to remember, okay, I'm not going to be fooled by this. I'm not going to be fogged by the world and be led into temptation by these ridiculous notions that I can satisfy myself. You apprehend the salvation that God has provided. You take hold of it. That's what apprehend means. And you remember that Jesus Christ has saved you, and you function and you live in that reality. Now for the sixth weapon... Paul urges believers to know and make use of the scriptures as a means of defense against every form of demonic attack. Look at verse 17 again. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now Paul's emphasis so far has been defensive. Stand, 
firm. Here's what you need to defend yourself. Here's how to protect yourself against the attacks. And now with the sword, he gives us an offensive weapon. And I'm going to actually make an argument that it's both offensive and defensive, but it is primarily offensive, and I think that's what Paul is doing. So let's look at the two descriptive words that Paul uses here in describing the word of God as a weapon. Two things. He says first that it is a sword. The word of God is a sword. And I think he says this because of the word's power to cut, to pierce. Hebrews 4.12, what does that say? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. The word of God can get in where it needs to get in because it is an offensive weapon. It's sharp, it can pierce and divide. And as much as the sword of the spirit, the word of God is offensive, it, it helps us to combat this stuff, it is also defensive. I want to point out this because I think this is likely how we need to use the word and how we need to wield it in our own life. Not only can it deliver wounds, but it can also parry or block the blows that are swung at us by our enemy. This is how Jesus used the scriptures in his temptation in Matthew 4. When Satan comes to Jesus and he swings his accusation at him saying, hey, I don't think that's really what God meant. I think you should put God to the test. I think you should try him or exalt yourself. Jesus blocks that with the word of God. And he says, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he blocks those blows from Satan. He uses the sword defensively. And I think if the Son of God uses the scriptures in this way, then you and I, who are not God, need to understand our desperate need to know and apply the scriptures. This is so important. My, my desire as a pastor is to keep the word of God at the center of everything we do. That is not redundancy. That is not overduplicate. Whatever you want to call it. It is just the conviction that we have nothing outside of the word of God. So in all of our ministry efforts, and all, we just had an elder retreat this past weekend, and it was so good. And I'm so thankful that the men that God has brought into the church have the same conviction, that we want to stand on the word of God. It is what we have to use. And God in his grace has provided it for us. So if, if Jesus uses the sword as a weapon and a defense, you and I need to as well, and more so. The word of God is the only weapon that will both vanquish the enemy and ward off his attacks. Martin Luther, uh, I think, saw the word of God in this very same way. During the time when Luther was translating the New Testament into German, which I would say was his greatest contribution to the Reformation, because what it did was it took the Bible and put it in the hands of the people so they could read it for themselves. Right? Formerly, it was just you had to listen to the priest and whatever he told you. You, just, you couldn't prove him wrong because you couldn't read it. It was in Latin or Vulgate or whatever. So Martin Luther is translating the New Testament into German. And during that time, he records that it was the most intense time of spiritual attack he ever experienced. 
Satan knew what he was doing. He knew the consequence of what would happen if people had the word of God in their hand and he amplifies his attacks. And Martin Luther writes about this particular night when he is working on this translator and just feeling this overwhelming sense of attack and he has this vision of Satan standing there with a scroll reading off all of his sins and saying to Luther, you're disqualified, you're going to go to hell, you are a sinner. And he was in such spiritual torment and finally Luther cries out and says, it's true, it's all true, I'm a sinner. But right at the bottom of your list, Satan, that the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And with that sword stroke, Luther puts the devil in his place. The word of God is a weapon to be used in both offense and defense against the attacks of our enemy. The second way that Paul describes the word, so first is a sword. Second thing he says is that the sword is of the Spirit. The sword is of the Spirit. Or a literal translation would be the sword which the Spirit supplies. It's different wording than the shield of faith. With the shield of faith, we could say, take up the shield which is faith. But with the sword of the Spirit, we don't say, take up the sword which is the Spirit. Okay, there's, there's difference, a little tricky to see in English. But we should see this as the sword which the Spirit supplies. Now, there are two unique things happening in that phrase. First of all, this is the only time in all of the Bible that a sword is associated with the Spirit. That doesn't make it any less significant or any less helpful, but it's just interesting that it's the only time that the biblical writers associate a sword with the Spirit of God. Second unique thing here is that this is the only time in Paul's writing that he uses the phrase, Word of God. It's not that he doesn't talk about the scriptures or their inspiration or how they were put together or anything like that, but the only time he uses that phrase, word of God, which again reinforces to me that he's going back and drawing from, remember Isaiah 40, a beautiful chapter right in the middle of the book, and it says the grass, this is verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of God stands forever. The only time in Paul's writing that he uses this. Now, those are some unique things, they're interesting things, but what I want to do now in the remainder of our time is to talk about the connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Okay, Paul says this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so what is the connection between the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God? That's what I want to talk about here for the rest of our time. First, I want to say that the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who oversaw, if you will, the writing of the Bible and inspired the writers to do this. A couple texts that back this up. 2 Timothy 3. If you went through Awana, we should all be able to say this together. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You know what that means. I think we've talked about that before. And is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The Spirit moves in the hearts of human agency and it is breathed out by Him. Second Peter 1, verse 20. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. And here's how, now he tells us, how did the Scriptures come about? 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 21. So the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, or we could say that he was the instrument of their coming about. So the connection there is that the scriptures come from God through the agency of his Holy Spirit. But not only does the word come from the Spirit, the word is enlightened to us by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who helps us understand what the word says. Unless God, through his Holy Spirit, opens our understanding, you will read the Bible as any other book. Words on a page. But if the Spirit of God, Jesus talked about this in John's Gospel, binds himself to the Word and binds himself to your heart, there is this connection that your heart is enlightened so that you can understand what the Scriptures are saying. We see this happen in in practice or as examples numerous times in the Bible. A good example would just be the Ethiopian eunuch that Ben talked about a couple weeks ago. The guy's reading and he goes, I have no idea, what is this saying? And until the Spirit of God comes and opens his understanding, it's foolishness. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and your understanding. Now, here's a couple of examples from the Scriptures that are encouraging us to pray this way, to ask God to do this. And these are two of my favorites and probably the verses that I pray the most as I'm preparing to preach Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I would see wondrous things from your law. David and the psalmists and all the guys who are contributing to Psalm 119 know and they understand that unless the Spirit of God opens our understanding, we have no hope of understanding the Scriptures or applying it to our life in a helpful way. Therefore, we see prayers like, God, open my understanding. Help me know what your word says so that I can see things that are unbelievable but that are for my good. Second one comes from earlier in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, Ephesians 1, 16. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Okay, Paul says, God, give them your spirit. Why? What's the outcome of the giving to the spirit? He goes on, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us who believe. You will not know those things unless the Holy Spirit opens your understanding. Therefore, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, has an inseparable connection between Word and Spirit. Sound familiar? Connection between Word and Spirit? What's another way to refer to Jesus, second person of the Trinity? The Word, John 1, the Word became flesh. And the Holy Spirit. There's there's the Trinitarian connection between the Word and the Spirit, and in our understanding, our reality, there is an inseparable connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now last week, I told you that the first three weapons were all about Jesus. If you remember this, and we made some real clear connections and comparisons, and this week I'm telling you that these three things, the helmet of salvation, 
the sword, all this is all about the Bible. I'm not trying to make a weird division or anything. Just bear with me. And here's what I mean. You cannot wield the shield of faith without knowing what faith is. And you cannot know what faith is without the scriptures. You cannot put on the helmet of salvation without knowing what salvation is. And you cannot know what salvation is apart from the scriptures. Should we all say the third one together? You know know where I'm going with this? We cannot swing the sword of the Spirit unless we know what it is. And we cannot know what it is without the Word of God. And we cannot know what the Word of God says is without the Spirit. Do you see how all of this is interconnected? That you cannot say, well, I have the Bible, that's all I need. I don't need the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to figure it out. And you cannot say, well, I have the Spirit indwelling me, I don't need the Bible. They are connected. They are one. You need it. You need to read the scriptures, asking God to tell you what's in there. I'm jealous for that, for our, for our church. That we don't just read the Bible out of some kind of duty and just, well, I'm going to read this and I'll read another book and I'll read this book and I'll end with it. No. No, this is unlike any book. This is the word of God. Inspired by his spirit, applied to your heart by his spirit. So pray and ask that God would do that. Now I want to close by giving you an encouragement and instruction. It can be summed up in three simple words. Ask, apprehend, apply. I'm a Baptist, so I had to use alliteration. All A's. Ask, apprehend, apply. Ask God to work through his spirit to open your understanding so that you know his word. And I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't know of another prayer that God is more eager to answer than if you pray that he will open your understanding to know what he says. Ask him. He'll do it. Second, apprehend. Take hold of the truth of God's word that you read. Apprehend means to arrest, to take a hold, to hold on to. So hold on to that truth. This is how you're going to get the shield up. You remember that? You need to have some texts in your mind. You need to apprehend what the word of God says so that you can get that shield up and in the place it needs to be. You need to have texts to go back in to encourage your heart. You need to understand. You need to apprehend. Finally, we need to apply the truth of the Bible to the way that you live your life. Maybe this seems obvious. But the practice of this can be very difficult. You can read something, you can think you have a grasp on it, and you can have no idea what to do with it. And I would just say, by way of encouragement, that so often, I would say way more than any other means, God has encouraged my heart and helped me apply things through another brother or sister. It is so important that we are together with one another in community in, in a variety of ways. Big, large group, this is, this is awesome. My favorite day of the week is Sunday. But we also need to be in smaller context. You need someone to come alongside you to open up the Bible and say, hey, do you know what that means? I think this is what it means. I think you could apply this this way and you're helped and you're encouraged. You gotta be open in the word with somebody else if you have any hope of applying it in a helpful way. And then, once you ask, apprehend, and have applied the word to your life, help somebody else with that. This is the pattern of the Christian life. This is why we are here, is because 2,000 years ago, Paul planted a church. 
And in that church, people got together and they read his letters and they studied the Old Testament and people got equipped through the word of God and the spirit of God and they went and started another church. And the same thing happened in that church and on and on and on and then here we are by the work of God's grace. So don't think that we can get away without doing what Paul did. Ask God to open your understanding. Take hold, apprehend the word of God and apply it to your life and get with somebody who you can do that with. Or I could have just summarized my instruction by saying, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Would God grant us the grace to do this? Let's pray as we come to the table. Father in heaven, we again give you thanks. What a wonderful plan that you have put in place, that you have given us everything we need. And I pray over our congregation now this morning, Lord, that you would equip us from your word to be able to stand and not get knocked around by everything that's going on around us. I pray that we would take up faith, that we would look back with confidence knowing that what you've done through Christ is sufficient and that we would look forward and hope that what you have promised to do will happen. Father, minister to our hearts. Strengthen us. Give us the faith to trust that what you've said is true. And would we live our lives in a way that is worthy of your gospel. Come and do this work now, I pray. For our good and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.